Maybe they were blaming the people like Peter. If only he hadn't run away. Or if they defended Jesus in the garden. If, if, if they'd done it differently, they were blaming people. Or maybe they were just blaming the authorities. Or God, life, the universe and everything else. It can easily happen that when we're in despair, when we're feeling hopeless, we get to blaming ourselves or other people. And then Jesus joins them. But of course they don't recognise, they don't realise it's him. And when we feel hopeless, it's often hard to recognise Jesus in our situation. Does that resonate with you sometimes? When you're feeling really low, we just don't see Jesus. Where, where's he? He's not here. There's, we don't find Jesus in our circumstances. And that's normal. And he understands. Nevertheless, he always wants to engage with us in our despair. Just like with these disciples here, he comes alongside and walks with them. He wants to engage with us, even, especially, in our moment of despair. And just pause for a minute and just think about this situation. This is, as we know from our vantage point, the greatest day in history, Resurrection Day. And yet Jesus makes a priority of, ma making, of meeting with two very ordinary, depressed and confused disciples. On the most important day in history, that's what Jesus does. We don't even know the name of one of them, and the other guy only gets named once here in the whole New Testament. They weren't even the famous ones. This wasn't Peter or James or John. And yet Jesus, on Resurrection Day, makes a point of meeting with them. You see, it matters to him. We matter to him. You matter to him. I matter to him. And when we're feeling hopeless and in despair, Jesus wants to engage with us. And there's more, because when we're feeling like that, it's important not merely to admit that we're feeling hopeless and desolate in some sort of generalised sense, but it's actually important to name it, to name what the issues are. And that's what Jesus encourages these two to do. He encourages them to identify exactly what it is that's causing them to struggle so much. What was the situation? He gets them to tell me. Tell me, what, what happened? What happened in Jerusalem? You, you say all these things. What happened? Well, well, we were with Jesus and he was a mighty prophet. What things do we know in our situation? Or what things did we think we knew? And the disciples saying, but you see, he was a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. He was amazing. The things they thought they knew. Or maybe... Now they didn't. What things have gone so desperately wrong? Well, for these disciples, he got arrested. The religious leaders orchestrated it. And he got crucified. 
What hopes and dreams seem to have been dashed? What died? Well, those words which uh, they resonate with me so much when they say to Jesus, but we had hoped. We had hoped that he was going to be the one. And those hopes had died. He was supposed to be the Messiah, the one who was going to rescue the nation, bring every, all of their sort of hopes to fulfilment. And, and no, he died. Their hopes had died. And what things are just confusing to us. Yes, they'd heard weird stories from the women about seeing a vision of angels, but they didn't see Jesus and their hopes had died and they were in despair. The thing is, however distant Jesus feels, however hopeless we may feel, Jesus invites us to name the issues and he invites us to name these things to him. To name them to him. You see, it's very easy when we're feeling low, we're feeling depressed or feeling upset or whatever, we're feeling hopeless, maybe really low, it's very easy just to, uh, to rehearse them to ourselves. But if we just go over them and over them and over them to ourselves, we just kind of cement them and embed them deeper in. We just reinforce our sense of hopelessness. I, I can sometimes be prone to doing that, just going over and over and over it in my mind. But that doesn't take you very far. Jesus wants us to name the issues to him. And if we just rehearse them to, to each other, that may make us feel a little bit better. And sometimes sharing things, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. Yeah, there, there's a sense in that. And they, they were doing this, but it, unless or until we invite Jesus into our conversation, it doesn't actually change very much. We need to invite Jesus into our conversation. And we need to help each other do that as, as followers of Jesus here. You know, when you're talking with each other and perhaps one of you is feeling really low, really hopeless, really in despair, we can do, yeah, yeah we can do the, well, I'm just here to listen to you. And that's, that's good, as far as it goes. But we need to go further and encourage, invite, carefully, sensitively, yes, but invite Jesus into the conversation. Help, help each other to include Jesus in how we're feeling and where we're going. I find a practical step is journaling. Try journaling to Jesus. Journaling means sort of writing down thoughts in a book like that or something like that. And you could, I mean, people use journals in all sorts of ways. But in this context, if you want to name the issues that you're struggling with, try writing them down in, in the presence of Jesus. Not just to make you feel better. Consciously write them down before him, to him, in his presence. Name them. I find that helpful. You may do too. And then what happens <coughs> in our story? Well, Jesus <coughs> takes time with these two disciples and starts talking to him. And he, we need to allow Jesus into our situations to bring some sense of perspective. First thing we may need to do is allow him to bring a gentle rebuke. What does Jesus say? 
You are so senseless, he said to them, so slow in your hearts to believe all the things the prophets said to you. Don't you see? And of course they didn't see. And sometimes when we want to invite Jesus into our situation and want to allow him to bring us perspective, at that moment we may need to be open to a gentle rebuke from Jesus. He's always gentle, or usually, with us. But he needs sometimes to bring a gentle rebuke to shake us out of our self-absorption. It's very easy to become very self-absorbed <coughs> when it feels like our hopes have all been dashed. And at that moment, Jesus just may need to bring a little rebuke. Are we, are we up for that? Are we willing to receive that? Are we open to him saying, how slow you are to believe? Come on, stop and think. Lord, help us to be open to that gentle rebuke, even at those moments when we're feeling vulnerable. And notice what Jesus says. <clears throat> he goes on to say, didn't you realise that... Ooh, hello. Oh, that's better, thank you. Didn't you realise that the Messiah had to suffer and die and then enter his glory? He brings them a perspective and he brings it from scripture, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we need to understand that not everything that happens to us is for a purpose. In the case of Jesus, yes, but not everything that happens to us in our lives happens for a purpose, at least not a, a purpose from God. Sometimes things just happen. Sometimes life just sucks. But... Jesus can bring a purpose to everything. It may not happen for a purpose, at least not one of God's purposes, but he can bring a purpose to something. You see, our ever-resourceful God can turn every situation, our mess-ups, the mess-ups of others, natural problems, or even demonic stuff, God can turn every situation into something precious. He can take stones and make diamonds out of them. And then note how Jesus takes them through the Old Testament scriptures and how this helps them to get a perspective. Helps them to see in a new framework what was going on. So when we're feeling in despair, it takes time to allow the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind examples from scripture that maybe carry echoes of or lessons for, for our own situation. You see, it's unlikely that we're the first people to have ever faced whatever it is we're going through or felt like we're currently feeling. Take time to allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind examples from Scripture that speak into our situation. That's what Jesus did with them. And he took them through from Moses, all the prophets, and through all of the, the Bible or the Old Testament it was for them. Took them through the whole lot and pointed out the things that were relevant to them in exactly this circumstance. One of the most helpful things we can do uh, when we're wanting to get God's perspective and wanting to see in Scripture is, is to read the Psalms can't help but read the Psalms and recognise the times when David is complaining to God. 
psalms of lament, of sadness, of anger, of frustration, of hurt. And David lets it all out. He's very clear about it, but notice he does it to God. He makes his complaint to God. He laments before God. And very often, you'll read in the Psalms, he takes, he goes through that and he reminds himself and recalls, yes, but I remember you were like this in the past. You've been good to me in the past. We sang it earlier. You're good. I remember you've been good. You're always good. Getting God's perspective, using scripture in that context. And then notice how desperate these two disciples were to have Jesus stay with them. They were not just sort of mentioning to him, well, do you want to stop by for a bite to eat or something? It wasn't that kind of casual, can if you want. They were absolutely desperate in that circumstance. Jesus, stay with us. Stay with us. We need to, particularly when we're struggling, be really hungry for Jesus to stay with us. You see, he is always eager for our company. We've already seen that. But he waits for our invitation. And he goes in, in the story, and sits down, or lays down, as they probably did in those days, to eat with them. And now at this point I could quite easily uh, uh, explore the significance of Jesus, how he revealed himself to them in breaking bread. And there are lessons there clearly. There, there are clear hints in the, in the passage at the importance of, of learning to worship even when we feel hopeless, of learning the breaking bread with Jesus in that kind of what we would now see as a worship context. We could explore that, but I know for myself and probably for you, that there's a, when we're feeling hopeless, praise and worship is just not really the thing we most want to do. It's, a, it's just an ask. we too far. But what I do want to emphasise is this. The two followers of Jesus here craved the companionship of Jesus over an ordinary meal, a chance to rest, and to unwind, to be refreshed, to continue the conversation. Learning to quietly rest in the presence of Jesus is something that I suggest we all of us need to learn to do more of. If we want to fully appreciate who Jesus really is, we want to recognise him, as happened here, if we want to get a better perspective on our situation, which is causing us distress, we need to learn to recognise and to rest in his presence. And in our very rushed lives, for many of us anyway, taking time out to rest with Jesus isn't something that comes particularly naturally to many of us anyway. Three suggestions. Start with realistic aims, but be persistent. Choose a time and place carefully and explore what helps us to quieten our thoughts. Let me just take you through those for a moment. Many of us are pressed for time. 
Or at least we think we are, and some of us really are. So we shouldn't make brave resolutions that we just can't keep, that are just unrealistic. Yes, Lord, I want to spend an hour each day in your presence, just resting in your presence. Yeah, well, good for you, great, if you can. But if that's not realistic, probably choose to be a little bit more realistic. Could you take ten minutes, two or three times a week? Probably most of us could do that. Many of us do do that, but maybe maybe something to, to work on. And it's not so much the fact that, oh, Lord, I tried it and it didn't do anything and I didn't hear anything and I didn't feel anything. And Be persistent. Get a rhythm in your life, get a rhythm in my life about resting in Jesus' presence. And then choose a place and a time carefully, one that works for you and that uh, works with your personality. I know some folks who, who like to go walking. I quite like that. I know one or two folks who go running and find that helpful for prayer. Seems weird to me, but anyway. <coughs> if that works for you, find a place that's good. Find a, a, for, for many of us, actually just taking time to, to just lay down somewhere, preferably with a cushion, Lay down. Sometimes I find it helpful to also, or on occasion, to have a place in my imagination, not merely physically. A place I go to to rest with Jesus in my imagination. You might want to think about that. Come and talk to me afterwards if that was something that resonates with you. And then explore what helps you, what helps me, to quieten our thoughts in Jesus' presence. Because that's quite important. Um... Some people, music is really, really, really helpful and love to put music on, perhaps worship music or whatever, and that's really, really helpful. For others, it's just a distraction. It's just a personality thing. Sometimes I find music helpful. Sometimes I just find myself dissecting the words, picking holes in the melody or whatever. Often, reading a portion of scripture can be helpful, but sometimes, for some of us anyway, if I'm actually just trying to rest in Jesus' presence, actually that can, uh, uh, that's not the most helpful thing at that moment to do. F- for people like me, because my, my mind's often going, I'll start reading scripture just wanting to be before Jesus, and I immediately start going down theological rabbit holes about what does that really mean? And did that word actually say, where did that happen? And who was that person? And I'll, I've lost it then. So sometimes for people like me, that's not the most helpful thing at that moment. Find out what works for you. And then the eyes of their heart were, enlightened, were opened. And they see, the two disciples see, and they see the, yeah, you guessed it, yes, it's the uh, elephant in the room. The elephant in the room. I was always going to get to the cuddly toy. They recognise it's Jesus. Right there with them, and that changes everything. It changes everything. The stranger was not merely helping these disciples to get a better perspective concerning Jesus. The stranger turned out, it was Jesus. It is Jesus. When we truly grasp the reality and the significance 
of the resurrection of Jesus, of the resurrected King. It changes everything. And like the elephant, once we recognise it, once we see it and acknowledge it, it's just kind of impossible to ignore. It's just there. Yes, in this situation, Jesus did then immediately vanish, but he'd meet them again shortly afterwards. But seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead and fully alive, this changes everything. And rather, for these two disciples, rather than continuing to walk away from Jerusalem in despair, the two of them immediately get up, turn around, probably leave their meal, and despite being worn out from their journey, they go straight back up and rush back to the very place where they thought all of their hopes had died, but they hadn't. The resurrection changes everything. It's like the elephant in the room. Once you see it, it dominates. Why? What does it mean? Why, why does it change everything? Well, firstly, it means that despite appearances, evil and injustice don't win in the end. It may look like that, but love wins and evil gets overthrown. Sure, life may be unfair, sometimes it is, but it will not ultimately remain so. That's what resurrection says. Despite appearances, evil and injustice don't ultimately win. It also means that our best hopes, hopes for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for this earth, they were not misplaced after all. The disciples thought, oh, we had hoped and now obviously we were wrong. Well, they weren't really misplaced after all. They were just too small, just too limited. They thought that Jesus was coming to re-establish Israel as the biggest and best of the nations. Oh, he had much bigger plans than that. Much bigger plans than that. He was restoring and reclaiming the whole earth, reasserting his rightful lordship over the whole of creation. Bigger than just Israel. You see, the truth is better than we can imagine. And it means, this resurrection, it means that the life of the age to come, when there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, when the whole earth gets restored and renewed, it's already begun, because that's what resurrection means. The new life has already started. It's like an incoming tide. It may take time, but it can't ultimately be resisted. And... However confused these two disciples were, however confused we sometimes are, particularly when we're going through tough times, we need to recognise that the resurrection changes everything because it does mean that new creation has begun. It also means that whatever accusations get levelled at us, provoking in me and us a sense of guilt and shame, these will be silenced once and for all. And maybe the part of the things that we're going through, maybe something that you're going through at the moment, is feeling, <clears throat> feeling down and there's all sorts of sense of guilt and shame um, gnawing at your, at your thoughts, dragging you down. And yes, there may be guilt there, but resurrection says... 
the accusation will not stand because resurrection says your position is forgiven and that verdict will stand vindicated by resurrection Back of and whatever <clears throat> whatever may happen to us physically even death we get resurrected into a whole new transphysical form without all the weaknesses without all the lim limitations of this present body so when Jesus can say and, and did say I am the resurrection of the life and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, and anyone who lives in me and believes in me will never truly die. This is not just something we quote at funerals. This is reality. It's a reality to live by, and he proved it. I was, um, I was struggling to sleep on Friday night. It took ages to get to sleep, and then I woke up early. <coughs> um, and the problem was that I was, um, my mind was churning over the finale of a, of a series, a film that I'd seen, I'd been watching. And you probably know the sort of thing. It had one of those endings that left you sort of guessing a bit. Some of the characters died or seemed to die. Some you were not so sure about. Did the good guys really win? Or was it all a bit unclear and ambiguous? Was the purpose for which the characters had been striving so hard, was it actually worthwhile? Did they actually achieve something of lasting good? Was there ultimately any resolution? And I do like resolution in films. Maybe I'm just a softie and I like happy endings. I need my cuddly toy. But you see, the resurrection declares that in the true story in which we live, the real story, God will bring total and satisfying resolution to this world. Love will win, evil will be overthrown, death is not the end, salvation is accomplished. The resurrection changes everything. You see, we can talk about hope, and we are talking about hope in all sorts of ways, and we can talk about how hopeful or not you or I may feel at any particular time. But as followers of Jesus, we cannot talk about hope without grasping and being grasped by the foundation of our hope, the elephant in the room, if you like. Because Christian hope is rooted in the fact that Jesus overpowered death. And because of that, so were we. And that changes everything. And it invites in us, it ignites in us an unshakable hope that enables us to let go of the hurts of the past, real though they are, painful though they may be. But like these disciples, we can, oh, it's not just like that. We can let go of the hurts of the past. We can persevere through the struggles of the present. These disciples went back to Jerusalem and, and the days and months, years to come were brilliant but hard. 
But when we know that resurrections happened, it ignites in us the ability to persevere because we know the resolution. And it ignites in us the ability to strain forward into the hope to which he has called us. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, the eyes of my heart may be enlightened, in order that we may know the hope to which he's called us. Can we just take a moment then? Uh, perhaps the band would like to come up, that would be helpful, thanks. But while we're just quiet, <coughs> to take a moment to invite Jesus into our situations. Vicky said as she started our worship this morning that however we were feeling, whether this is great time and you know we're living the dream, or whether this is a hard time, or whether this is just a dull time, just as an ordinary time, whatever situation we're in, let's invite Jesus into it. Let's just, as you perhaps close your eyes, just for a moment, rest before him. Take a few deep breaths. Just rest before him. He will bring perspective. You matter to him. He makes a point of wanting to walk with you. Even through this. And he will ignite or reignite hope. Because hope does not disappoint us. Lord Jesus, I ask that you help us to see you in our circumstances, to recognise you, to recognise you as risen, changing everything by your presence. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened that we may know the hope to which he has called us.